on this Sabbath, February 5th, 2011. As my wife just said, we are very thankful to the Lord for healing little Caleb of what is known as rat lungworm. Um, he did have a parasite that had traveled into his brain and uh, through much prayer and of course through the wisdom that God gives to his instruments, the physicians, um, but ultimately we believe through prayer that God has um, healed him and it's nice to see him smiling again and, and being goofy. And Before I s begin this morning, uh, let us bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, you have promised to us in Matthew 18 that where two or three are gathered, behold, you are there in the midst of them. We claim this promise this morning. Jesus is in our midst, and this is who we need. May our hearts be open to see him, to hear him, to feel him very near to our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would shield us, put a hedge of protection about this building, for we know that where your saints are gathered, Satan very much tries to distract us. And so we pray, Lord, for your presence, for your angels to guard this place, shield us and protect us from Satan, from distractions and cares of this world. May we be able to hear your spirit speaking to our hearts. I pray that you would hide my weaknesses behind your strength, my inabilities in your abilities. This is my prayer in Christ's name. I haven't taken Pastor Keala's class, or I'm not registered for the preaching class, so uh, bear with me, please. <laughs> this morning, the title of uh, our sermon this morning is Raising Up the Jacob Generation. Raising Up the Jacob Generation. We are truly living in the last days. Many of us may not be as aware as, as others, but I believe we are living in the last days of Earth's history. And as we just heard last week in Hilo, we had the privilege of having Mark Finley uh, via DVD presentation um, presenting a sermon on First Things First in which he pointed out how all of Laodicea, all of the ten virgins were asleep. So, uh, all of us can be said are not fully awake and aware to, to what is happening at this point in Earth's history. But we do live in the very last moment of Earth's history. And with that comes many blessings. Because throughout history, the church has looked to this point with anticipation, wishing that they themselves could be there. When the climax of history will occur, this world, as we know it, will come to an end, and Jesus himself, our Savior, God himself, will come, redeem his people, and put an end to the sin that we have been experiencing. So there are blessings that we have as being the end-time people of God, living in the very last closing days of his history. There are also challenges, for as we live in the very last days of his history, sin is coming to its uh, greatest fulfillment. If you look in the world around us, there is so much that tempts us, especially uh, in other places, let's say, uh, away from Hawaii. But even in Hawaii, there's, there's much to tempt us. There's much sin in society around us, much to influence us and our children away from God and 
towards the things of this world. But I believe that the greater the darkness, the greater will the light shine. So it is a blessing to live in these last days. Let us turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. We are living in the last days as the final generation, I believe. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 14, reading on down through verse 17. And it says, And the heaven departed as a scroll when it is rolled together, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. And the kings of the earth, and the great men, and the rich men, and the chief captains, and the mighty men, and every bondman, and every free man hid themselves in the dens and in the rocks of the mountains, and said to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For, great, for the great day of his wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? Here is presented a picture of the second coming of Jesus Christ. And to those that are living apart from God, that haven't been seeking his face, to whom his face is a strange face, they will ask the question, who shall be able to stand? And even us as Christians, as we look at what we are to experience in these last days, we sometimes in our hearts present the question, who shall be able to stand? But praise the Lord, the answer comes in 2 Corinthians 12, 9, my grace is sufficient for you. The question is this morning, who shall be able to stand in that great day when Jesus, our Lord and Savior, comes, returns to this earth to take his children home? Turn with me to Daniel chapter 6, I'm sorry, uh, Daniel chapter 12, Daniel chapter 12, let us read a little bit more of the experience of the final generation, what it is that they will have to stand through. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1, and it says, And at that time shall Michael stand up, the great prince which standeth for the children of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation, even to that same time. Here is depicted at the very close of earth's history a time of trouble such as never was ever before. Who shall be able to stand is the question I pose this morning. Praise the Lord as we continue in that verse. It does say, and at that time, your people shall be delivered. Turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 30. Jeremiah chapter 30, we'll be looking at verses 5, 6, and 7. Looking a little bit more specifically at this time that was just described as the time of of trouble such as never has been. Jeremiah chapter 30, looking at verse 5 through 7, it says, For thus says the Lord, We have heard a voice of trembling, of fear, and not of peace. Ask ye now, and see whether a man doth travail with child. Wherefore do I see every man with his hands on his loins, as a woman in travail? And all faces are turned into paleness. Alas! For that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble. 
So now it is presented this great time of trouble as the time of Jacob's trouble. A time of trouble such as has never been or shall never be. But praise the Lord, at the end of verse 7 it says, But he shall be saved out of it. The time of Jacob's trouble, the final generation shall stand through this trying time. I would uh, highly encourage you to go home and read uh, Great Controversy chapter 39 so that you can be refreshed and reminded of exactly what we shall experience during the time of Jacob's trouble. We won't be looking so much this morning as what exactly it is, but who will be able to stand through this time of trouble such as never has been or never shall be? What are the characteristics of the spiritual experience that this final generation needs to have? What will be the spiritual qualities of those that shall be able to stand? Turn with me to the book of Psalms. book of Psalms, we'll be looking at chapter 24. This will be our main text this morning, and we'll begin... Verse 3. Starting in verse 3, it says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? The question here is asked, Who shall be able to stand? Who shall be able to stand in his holy place? And as we read the following verses, we gain insight into understanding what will be the experience of those that shall be able to stand through that time of trouble, the time of Jacob's trouble. And I think pertains to us in these closing days of verse history. Verse 4, the answer is now given of who shall be able to stand and who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord. Verse 4 says, he that hath, what? He that hath clean hands what is signified by clean hands what are hands symbolic of in the bible the hands are a symbol of human action the activities that we participate in the things that we as humans do our hands denote this and what is meant by clean hands clean hands symbolizes sanctification and purity just as in the Bible, washing of hands symbolizes innocence. As we think of the hands of our greatest example this morning, Jesus' hands, what do we see? We see them outstretched to all humanity, to those both high and low, those rich and poor. We see them outstretched to any in need. The hands, the mighty, powerful, holy hands of God embraced frail Weak, powerless, suffering humanity with agape love and the kind and tender, compassionate touch of Jesus as he gave sight to the blind and speech to the mute, strength to the lame, healing to the sick, deliverance to the drunkard and to the homosexual as he held the fatherless and the homeless and gave forgiveness and new life to the prostitute and to the adulterer as he washed the filthy, dusty feet of his disciples, as he embraced the untouchable leper, we see the hands of Jesus drenched and saturated with the suffering of mankind. But yet, there was never more clean hands than his. 
I'm thought of the experience of Father Damien, who was a Catholic priest that was sent to minister to the lepers on the island of Molokai. And he ended up dwelling there in the Kalapapa Peninsula with the lepers on Molokai. And before he was commissioned and sent to the island, he was a very dedicated man, was ready to, to do anything for the Lord and serve these people that were in need. He was reminded by his superiors, just remember, just remember, don't touch them. Do this, do that, minister to them. But just remember, don't touch them. But sure enough, as he ministered to them and, and through the days and weeks and months, grew to love these people, he couldn't but touch these people that he so loved. The final generation will not be afraid to reach out and touch human pain and suffering. Our hands don't get dirty from reaching out to those that are soiled in sin. I believe that on the contrary, that's one of the ways of cleansing our hands. The final generation will be one known for its compassion for suffering humanity. They will have hands as Christ ever outstretched to bless. You wonder, is this biblical? Well, what does Matthew 25 show us? Matthew 25, just turn there quickly, verses 34, Matthew 25. Verse 34, Jesus says, Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And here is a description of the spirituality of these people that will receive blessing from the Lord. For I was hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. James 1.7 says, pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. Let us continue on in Psalms 24 looking at the next section of verse 4. Clean hands and what comes next? And pure hearts. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart. What is symbolized here by pure heart? Ezekiel 36 verse 26 says, A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you, and I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. Verse 27, and I will put my spirit within you. So not only clean hands, the actions that show love for God and for man, but also pure heart, symbolizing that the hearts of God's people will have been transformed by his grace. The greatest miracle ever will have happened in the hearts of his people, and that is turning a heart of stone into a heart of flesh. In Romans 2, verses 28, 29, we see that circumcision is not that of the flesh, but of the heart. It's an inward process that God is seeking to work in his people. Not outward changes, but an inward transformation of the heart. John 3, 3. Ye must be born again. Speaking also of a conversion that touches our hearts and changes us on the inside. 
clean hands and a pure heart. You know, in Matthew 15, 8, Christ pronounces a very uh, sad judgment or, or, or lays out the condition of the Pharisees, which is very sad, and I pray it would not be our condition when he says, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. My prayer this morning is that the words of Psalms 19.14 can be lived out in us where it says, let the words of my mouth and also the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. So clean hands and a pure heart, our actions will be reflecting the love of Jesus Christ and our hearts will be filled with love for God and love for man. We will have experienced the new birth. Continue on in verse 4. It says, and has not lifted up his soul to an idol. In other translations, may say uh, unto vanity, but the literal is actually idol. So this is a people that are willing to renounce everything. Nothing comes before God. Nothing comes before God. Whether it's our job, our work, hobbies, even family, earthly pleasures, not even church service and ministry. Sometimes we can get caught up in just these forms. And yet it takes us away from truly having a heart experience with God. I remember the uh, series by Taj Pakleb just back in August of last year where he, he used this, uh, uh, he called it busy, busy, Burdened under Satan's yoke. Burdened under Satan's yoke. So God's people will not be burdened under Satan's yoke. They will renounce anything that is coming before God and Christ will be first in their lives. Continue on in verse 4. It says, nor sworn deceitfully. There will be no deceit, no deception, no dishonesty, no cheating in this final generation that shall be able to stand. Clean hands, pure hearts, not lifting up their souls to an idol, not being deceitful. How can this take place? How can there be such a thorough conversion that the outward, the inward, the everything has been transformed and changed? And I believe we know the answer. Zechariah 4.6 says, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit saith the Lord of hosts. The final generation will be a people basking in the fullness of the Holy Spirit, daily drinking, daily drinking, moment by moment, drinking from this fountain of life. People feeding their spirit, not feasting on the flesh. I'm sorry, people feeding their spirit, feasting on the spirit, not feeding their flesh, feasting in sin. In Romans 8, Verses 4 through 5, it says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the spirit, I'm, say, I'm sorry, they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. A people feeding their spirit, feasting on the Holy Spirit. In Joel 2, 28, 29, it says, and, at, and it shall come to pass afterward that I shall pour out my spirit upon all flesh. 
and your sons and daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions. Can it be that this final generation will not experience the Holy Spirit in such a marked manner as the New Testament church in the apostolic days experienced? No. The Holy Spirit shall be poured in abundance, and this final generation will have uh, the fullness of the Spirit in their lives. Great Controversy, page 611, says, The great work of the gospel is not to close with less manifestation of the power of God than mark its opening. So the Holy Spirit will be integral in the lives of the final generation. Verse 5 in Psalms 24, it says, verse 5, He shall receive the blessing from the Lord. The final generation will be a people that know how to claim the promises of God in prayer and persevere until that blessing is granted and the petition is answered. It'll be a people of unshakable faith. Matthew 21, 22, In all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it shall be given you. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and the door shall be opened unto you, a people that will receive blessing from the Lord. Continuing on in verse 5, and righteousness also shall receive righteousness from the God of his salvation. So opposite of Isaiah 64, 6, where it says that our righteousness are as filthy rags, this will be a generation and a people that will be covered by the robe of Christ, righteousness. Revelation 3.18 says, I counsel you, buy from me white garments that you may be clothed and the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. This is a people that have taken this instruction seriously and they are accounted worthy on the merits of Jesus Christ, their personal Lord and Savior. Continuing on in verse 6 in Psalms 24, I'm going to take the liberty of reading this actually in the New King James. It says, this is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. This is Jacob. This is an interesting statement. Somehow the experience we are reading here will somehow relate to the experience Jacob had. But we'll see how this ties in shortly. Let's continue. This is Jacob, the generation of them who seek him. Okay, so here is pictured uh, people that are seeking not after the things of the world, but seeking after their Savior, Jesus Christ. And specifically, what are they seeking? It, continue on in verse 6, you'll see what they're seeking. What are they seeking? His, his face. The generation of them who seek him, who seek his face. Why seeking his face and not his hands? They're not merely seeking God's hands, not merely seeking results or an experience or merely his blessings, which maybe some of us are doing. But above all, they are seeking the face of Jesus. And why is it that they're seeking the face? Why the face of Jesus Christ? It's through the face, or it is to the face that we look to see a reflection of what's in the heart. 
Through the eyes, we can read the depths of the soul. And so we want to see his eyes and his heart of love. So this is a generation that seek the face of Jesus. The beholding principle is in effect here. The key to every success in the Christian walk. By beholding Christ, we are changed into his likeness, right? 2 Corinthians 3.18, but we all with open face beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Seeking his face, living in his presence every moment as though in his presence with the face of Christ ever before us, leading us step by step. A generation seeking the face of of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, removing every hindrance because they know, according to Isaiah 59, verse 2, that your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden his face from you. So there is a removing of every hindrance taking, uh, uh, taking place in the lives of this final generation. Psalm 66, 18, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. There is a Willingness to remove every hindrance. There's a heart-searching, wholehearted turning to God, a humbling of ourselves and seeking genuine repentance and sorrow for sin. Even repentance, only the goodness of God can lead us to that. Confession of sins. Such affliction of soul can only lead to a revival of primitive godliness such as was in the apostolic era. 2 Chronicles 7, 14, it says, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Joel 2, 12 through 13 says, Now therefore says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness. Psalms 139, verses 23-24, we read, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Removing every hindrance, coming in humility before God, willing to renounce sin and come to him. In seeking his face, there must be an intense appetite for God, a divine dissatisfaction with powerless Christianity. Matthew 5, 6 will be lived out in this final generation, seeking with all their hearts the face of Jesus Christ. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after food, after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Psalm 63, verse 1. O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. Do we long for water when we're in a dry and thirsty land? Have you experienced such thirst? Can we compare that, even to a greater extent, our longing for God, that is to be our experience. Psalms 27, verse 8, When you said, seek my face, my heart said unto you, your face, Lord, will I seek 
Psalms 42, 1 and 2. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Searching for God with every fiber of our being. Jeremiah 29, verse 13, it says, And you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Spiritual appetite that is greater even than physical hunger. Job 23, verse 12, we read, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. The words of the scriptures of God more than the food that is on my table. This is to be the experience of the final generation that shall be able to stand. But let us see, why was it said there, this is Jacob, verse 6. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face. Something about what we read here in Psalms 24, verses 3 through 6, applies and relates to the experience that J Jacob himself had. And so let us turn now to a different part of the Bible. Let us turn now to Genesis. We'll be looking at Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32. Finally, Jacob is returning to his homeland where he has longed to be for many, many years. But yet all is not well. The memory of his sin committed against his brother and against God has left him with an accusing conscience and has made his journey very sad. And so here we see him traveling on his way back to Canaan. And so as he is traveling back, what is on his mind? What is the name of one individual that is now on his mind? Esau, right? Esau. He is worried. He is distressed. He is not sure how Esau will respond to him coming back. And so what does he do? He sends a messenger to go before to give greetings to his brother and to send him gifts. But the messenger returns and says that, in verse 6, we came to your brother Esau, and also he comes to meet you with 400 men with him. And oh no, verse 7, Jacob is greatly afraid and distressed. So he's carrying the uh, memory of his sin with him. He has gone to the Lord for repentance of this beforehand, but yet hasn't quite really laid these burdens fully at the feet of Jesus. He's still wondering what is going to be the response of his brother, and now as the messengers come back saying that he hasn't really accepted your, your uh, message and offer of peace, he now begins to worry, worry, worry. All that he values and all that is dear to him in life is standing by his side, his possessions, his family, his children, his loved ones. And he's not ready to face 400 men ready for the battle. He is not prepared. He is in no way ready for this situation. And so what does he do in his great distress? He decides and devises a plan that he will do all that he can. He will turn to God, yes, but he also sends Messengers again saying, your servant Jacob, my lord Esau, drove after drove of gifts to be presented to Esau that somehow this would show that Jacob was coming in humility. But in the midst of this distress, 
he turns to his only hope. He realizes that he has nothing in himself to get him out of the situation but to turn to God. And so he turns to God. The crisis of his life has come. Everything is at stake, and he turns to the Lord. Verse 24, we read, And Jacob was left alone. And so now he is left alone in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, out in the wilderness, surrounded by many dangers, knowing his family may be in is in harm's way, that anything could happen at any moment. He turns to God and begins there to sob and pour out his heart to this friend of his, his Savior. And there it says, Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. So he is in the midst of his prayer. He has been prayer, praying, and all of a sudden, he feels that someone is now there, grabbing a hold of him. And sure enough, he thinks he's in the wilderness. He thinks there, he knows that there, uh, that robbers and, and thugs frequent this desolate, wild place out in the desert. And so he believes it's the thief coming upon him to cause him injury and harm. And so in his, of course, natural mind, he turns and he begins to defend himself. And he puts forth all of his strength. And he fights and he wrestles. That what happens in verse 25? And when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he, meaning this angel of the covenant that turns out to be none other than Jesus Christ, he touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of his thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob now realized it was God himself that he was wrestling with. He must not let this opportunity pass without seeing the face of this God he so deeply loved and receiving the blessing he so desperately desired. He now falls at the feet of Christ, a helpless, weeping suppliant. And we read about this in Great Controversy, chapter 39. Long has he endured perplexity, and long has he endured remorse and trouble for his sin. Now he must have the assurance that he is pardoned. To the point that in verse 26, as this angel of the covenant, Jesus is trying to leave, he holds on to him with every fiber of his being. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. It is said in Great Controversy, chapter 39, what confidence, what firmness and perseverance is here displayed. Had this been a boastful, presumptuous claim, Jacob would have been instantly destroyed. But his was the assurance of one who confesses his weakness and unworthiness, yet trusts the mercy of a covenant-keeping God. How does this apply to the last generation? The time of Jacob's trouble, we shall go through a similar experience. Sister White, in Great Controversy, chapter 39, says, Those suffering the keenest anxiety, terror, and distress, they, this final generation, will not cease their intercessions, their prayers. They lay hold of the strength of God as Jacob laid hold of the angel. And the language of their souls is, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
The last generation will not turn from their purpose, but will hold fast to God and urge their petitions with earnest, agonizing cries until they prevail. Genesis 32, a little bit further down, a few verses. Verse 30 says, Jacob saying, For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. The only way that we can see God's face and not be consumed is to seek his face humbly, with heart-searching repentance and confession of sins, leaving nothing undone to remove any hindrance or known sins, pleading for his mercy and grace and perseveringly trusting his heart, even when our senses tell us otherwise. Psalms 24, verse 6. This is Jacob, the generation of those who seek him who seek your face. In these last days, there will be a generation that will go through similar trials and tests and will have a similar experience of wrestling with God until the blessing is received. In Psalms 22, verse 30, it says that a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. And so today I believe God is raising up this generation with the same humble, persevering spirit as that of Jacob's, the Jacob generation. The Spirit of God is moving in the hearts of humble instruments who are seeking His face, the face of Jesus Christ, more than life itself. Who are not afraid to give up all that they may gain His approving glance, His smile, and warm embrace of people who are willing to, uh, to lay aside every hindrance to his cause and yield to his spirit's work in us. A generation that lives with a mindset of ever being in God's presence, seeking moment by moment to fix their gaze on the face of Jesus Christ, following as he leads. His spirit is moving in the hearts of those who are not seeking to control his work, He's moving in humble, contrite hearts of men and women, both inside and outside of Seventh-day Adventism. The story was told to me by a dear friend that just recently became a Seventh-day Adventist, but loves the Lord, and I see the Holy Spirit moving in such a mighty way. But she told me of a story of a young individual in New Zealand. And this individual is a man that many of the Christians there that have recently con converted and given their lives to the Lord have have been, uh, um, been blessed by his ministry. He's a young man, really uh, devoted to the Lord, but he shared with many of his friends that in a dream, God told him that he was a part of the Jacob generation. And this is not someone within Adventism or, or that knows the terminology of Adventism. So he struggled with the Lord. And he says, I don't know, what does that mean, that we are part of the Jacob generation? And so he says that as he prayed and struggled with the Lord to understand what he meant, he was taken to that experience in Genesis chapter 32, where Jacob himself struggled, persevered, would not let go of God until he had the assurance of receiving the Lord's blessing. And so this young man in New Zealand that is not an Adventist, recognizes a truth that we as Adventists understand very clear, that we are living in the final days of Earth's history, and that this is, in fact, the final generation, the generation 
of Jacob. The Spirit of God is moving in sometimes unexpected ways, utilizing simple means to show that he is at the helm of his people in ways that may seem surprising to the religious establishment, even within Adventism. Uneducated children, according to the Spirit of Prophecy, in Testimony to Ministers, page 300, Sister White says, Let me tell you that the Lord will work in this last work in a manner very much out of the common order of things and in a way that will be contrary to any human planning. There will be those among us who will always want to control the work of God to dictate even what movement shall be made when the work goes forward under the direction of the third angel and the message to be given to the world. God will use ways and means by which it will be seen that he is taking the reign or the control in his own hands. The workers will be surprised by the simple means that he will use to bring about his perfect work of righteousness. Manuscript releases 15. He will raise up, uh, page 312, he will raise up from the common people men and women to do his work, even as of old he called fishermen to be his disciples. There will soon be an awakening that will surprise many. Those who do not realize the necessity of what is to be done will be passed by, and the heavenly messengers will work with those who are called the common people, fitting them to carry the truth to many places. And final uh, quote, Testimonies 5, page 80 and 82. In the last solemn work, few great men will be engaged. God will work a work in our day that but few anticipate. He will raise up and exalt among us those who are taught rather by the unction of his spirit than by the outward training of scientific and literary institutions. Are we avoiding the face of our Father this morning? Am I avoiding the face of a loving Savior? How would we feel if our child is going through difficult times? How would we feel if we know that if but only they would look at the face of their father, they would receive comfort, they would receive assurance of the love of a father that would give anything to this child. And yet that child going through the midst of difficulties and trials and tribulations refuses, repeatedly turns away from that glimpse that would give them hope and the assurance of a father's love. How does our Heavenly Father feel when we refuse to just look into his face and be transformed? It grieves and saddens his heart. My prayer this morning is that we would each choose to seek the face of Jesus, each choose to abide ever before his face, his presence, to soak in the life-giving, heart-transforming rays of love and light that shine from his face. That no matter the cost, no matter the trials that we may be brought through, that we would resolve in our hearts to ever cling to Jesus Christ as Jacob did, so can we. There will be trials and troubles ahead that we cannot even imagine that will make us wonder who shall be able to stand. But praise be to God that the answer comes, my grace is sufficient for you. I believe the Jacob generation is in preparation even as we speak. And this generation, the Jacob generation, in the power of God's spirit, will be able to stand. So I say if you, if I, if we want to be a part of that final 
generation, the Jacob generation, as this song that Brother Clayton Hanchett sings is played, I invite you to kneel where you're at. I believe we first must kneel before we can stand. And so I invite you to play Give Us Clean Hands by Brother Clayton Hanchett. 